0: Public sex represents the bulk of my nonfiction work from 1979 to the present. That's a decade and a half of fuming and fussing about sexual repression and censorship, bragging about my search for an ever more forbidden way to have an orgasm, struggling with many others to form and preserve the modern leather community, making alliances with other sexual minorities, and incurring the wrath of big brother, big sister, And a lot of other people who have too much power and no sense of humor. I've been pretty busy. The subtitle of this book, The Culture of Radical Sex, raises a definitional question. By radical sex, I do not simply mean sex which differs from the norm of heterosexual, vanilla, male dominant intercourse. People whose erotic practices are deviant do tend to acquire an outsider's critical perspective on marriage, the family, heterosexuality, gender roles, and vanilla sex. But being a sex radical means being defiant as well as deviant. It means being aware that there is something unsatisfying and dishonest about the way sex is talked about or hidden in daily life. It also means questioning the way our society assigns privilege based on adherence to its moral codes and, in fact, makes every sexual choice a matter of morality. If you believe that these iniquities can be addressed only through extreme social change, then you qualify as a sex radical, even if you prefer to get off in the missionary position and still believe there are only two genders. It seems appropriate to trace the history of my own personal and professional development as a sex radical to give you, the reader, some background to these pieces and some idea of where they fit in an overall scheme of radical sexual politics. The oldest article in the book, A Secret Side of Lesbian Sexuality, was published in The Advocate in 1979. The process of writing this single article and dealing with public reaction to it had a great impact on all the work I did after that. It created an ecological niche for me as a journalist whose work was simultaneously pornographic, political, and educational. This was one of the first pieces to appear in the gay press about women who do SM with other women. I was terrified when I wrote it. I kept getting up in the middle of typing to lie down until my nausea subsided and my hands stopped shaking. When that issue of The Advocate hit the newsstands, it was days before I could actually look at my words in print. Why write and publish something that felt so dangerous? Because I was pissed off. I was tired of reading lies about my sexuality— tired of being told i didn't exist and if i did it was only as a distant cousin to a rapist or a chainsaw killer i was tired of being alone and i knew there would never be a leather dyke community if somebody didn't announce that one already existed i figured if i was public enough about being into leather sex either i would get squashed and my misery would be over or other perverse girls would find me And then, I wouldn't be so lonely. There was another reason to come out. After watching the destructive impact the feminist anti-porn movement had on the lesbian community here in San Francisco, I was dying to write a critique of its inflammatory tactics and circular reasoning. But members of that movement fought really dirty. They attacked anybody who argued with them as an advocate of violence against women, a child molester or Gasp, a sadomasochist. They weren't above calling employers, publishers, or dissertation committees to inform them of the perverts in their midst. These stormtrooper tactics had intimidated most mainstream feminists from fighting head-on the Bay Area's Women Against Violence in Pornography and the Media. WAV-PM Mainstream feminists were also reluctant to get down in the muck and wrestle with W.A.V.P.M.'s more successful New York City heirs, Women Against Pornography, W.A.P. They were embarrassed by W.A.P.'s frank focus on sexually explicit material and uncomfortable with the idea of championing pornography.